Our scripture this morning comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 26. It reads, From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and to be on the third day raised. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke the Lord and said, God, forgive it, forbid it. This must not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but instead on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks be to God. Good morning, my friends. My name is Scott Gilliland, and I'm the senior pastor here at Arapaho United Methodist Church. I want to welcome you to worship here this morning, whether you're watching live on Sunday morning or you're watching later on this week. I'm so grateful that you could be with us during this time of worship as we continue in a sermon series titled Called Out This Morning. If this is your first Sunday or first uh, worship service with us, I want to encourage you, or if you just want to learn more about what we do here at Arapaho and who we are and what what we're about, you can go to our website, arapahoumc.org, specifically slash new, and that'll take you to a, a page on our site where you can fill out a short form, sign you up for our newsletter, comes out once a week, lets you know some of the things happening in the life of this church. It'll also get you a personal contact from both me and another pastor on our staff so that we can uh, start a conversation with you, answer any questions you may have, or be able to help connect you and engage you in the life of this church in a meaningful way. As I said, we're continuing in a sermon series called Called Out, where we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew, or as I call it, the Gospel for Good Churchy People. It's the Gospel where Jesus uh, has some of his most challenging words directed, not at Pharisees and Sadducees or some sort of outsider, but the folks who yearn to follow after him, his disciples, his followers, or those who would like to be followers but are unable to accept the challenges that Jesus offers. Jesus has such challenging and at times even frightening teaching for us. The words that he has for Peter in our scripture this morning, get behind me, Satan. Who wants to hear that from the Messiah that you've devoted your life to? So let's talk about that this morning during this this sermon. And in order to to get there, I want to talk about a heresy from 1700 years ago. There is a man named Arius. You can see his picture on the screen now. He was a good looker. I wish I had a, a fancy staff or, or like that, or maybe a big hat. We need to invest in that, I think. Um, Arius was a big-time theologian uh, in the area of Alexandria, and uh, he did not see things the way that the rest of the established church did, and he was in, eventually labeled a heretic. We're going to get to why in a moment, but his primary disagreement with the church was uh, rooted around Jesus's relationship to God. See, Arius was really focused on maintaining God's transcendence. And by that we mean God's ability to exist outside of the limits of this created universe. God existing outside of time, outside of space. 
And so for God to come down in the form of a human, and then especially to suffer and die, would have been seen as beneath God in Arius's eyes. Consider the other gods that were worshipped in Arius's day, the, the god of the Jewish tradition who many believed was, was above everything and, and, was, and could exist so beyond everything and would never get into the quagmire of human existence, or, or the gods of the Greek mythologies. Right? Um, for a god to suffer and die would have been seen potentially as, as weak. And so Arius is essentially trying to protect God in a way. So the early church, they gather for what they call the Council of Nicaea. And it's there that another theologian, this time named Athanasius of Alexandria, he was the assistant to the regional bishop of Alexandria. There you can see his picture on the screen. Athanasius and Arius engage in this epic theological showdown. And Athanasius proves the victor. Athanasius was a passionate supporter of what has become our standard theology and doctrine of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal and truly one with one another, including in the lived experience of Jesus Christ. See, what we accept as, as common uh, theology today, they were arguing about this back in the year 300-ish. It was a real barn burner of a debate. You know, is Jesus begotten or created? Are the three persons of the Trinity of one nature or three natures? Do they share one substance or a separate but co-equal substances without then subordinating one of the persons of the Trinity nor without sacrificing the church's commitment to monotheism? <gasps> Doesn't that sound exciting? The point is this. The Council of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed, was developed there. And it was accepted by the church. And it made clear that God was fully present in the person and work of Jesus. And importantly, that God suffered as Christ. That word suffered that they included in their creed, that is now our creed, is an important one. Arius' idea that God needed to be protected from something as vulnerable as suffering and death was deemed heresy. In fact, God's suffering and death was instead considered central to God's character and identity in this still new Christian faith. I say all of that, if you're wondering where on earth I'm going, I say all of that to say this, that Arius' mistake was also Peter's mistake. And I believe it can be our mistake as well. I want to say this at the beginning of the message today. God does not need our protection. God does not need our protection. I'll let you sit with that as long as you need. So let's look closer at Peter's story. Just before the scripture that we heard read this morning, something really important happens. Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. Or the Son of Man, the language that Jesus uses in Matthew's Gospel, this language that is really important for this Jewish tradition that, that Peter claims Peter is a, a good Jew. He's been raised in this theology, and he knows this Messiah, this Messiah figure is so important for his people. It's been prophesied for centuries, and, and Jesus says, who do you think it is? And some people say, well, maybe it was this person, or maybe it was this person, and Peter says, it's you, Jesus. You're the Messiah, and Jesus says, yes. And upon this rock, he changes his name from Simon to Peter, or in the old language, Cephas, which means rock. He says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. It's this beautiful moment where Peter is called out, and the, the shining light kind of comes down, and everyone, oh, 
he's teacher's favorite, right? And he's going to be the guy. He's the guy for Jesus. And then Jesus keeps teaching. And he starts to tell his disciples about what being the Messiah means for him. That he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be tortured and crucified and then resurrected. He says this a few times, and then you know, Peter's thinking to himself, what are you talking about? And he pulls Jesus aside, and he says, he, it says that he rebuked Jesus. Now, rebuke, that's a big, strong word in Scripture. It's not just like a, hey, what are you doing? It's an anger. There's an anger under there. What are you talking about? You're going to be killed. What, what are you talking about? You're going to go be martyred. He says, we can't let this happen can't let you die and then jesus says what might be the harshest words he has for any disciple in any of the gospels he says get behind me satan i don't know about you but i've never had a teacher call me satan before i've been called a lot of things now is jesus calling him satan this personified devil figure that we see in referenced in scripture maybe maybe but the word satan, in the Greek it's satano, it's just a transliteration of the Hebrew word satan. It's a word that means more generally an adversary or an accuser, someone who stands in your way, who's opposed to everything about you. In a courtroom setting, it's the one pointing the finger and accusing you of criminal action, right? Your accuser, your adversary, your opponent. Jesus says, get behind me, you who would accuse, who would oppose, who would stand against me in every way that I am. See, Jesus sees that, that Peter's desires are not actually in the best interest of Christ. They're actually in the selfish interests of Peter. He thinks he's helping, but he's not. Have you ever thought you were helping, but it turned out you weren't? So I look at Peter and I realize that something is true of him that's also true of us when we seek to protect or defend God against would-be assailants. Let me get in the way, God. Let me show you my sword and my shield. We're actually projecting our own fear like Peter is. A fear for ourselves, for our way of life, for our safety and our comfort. See, Peter thought that Jesus as the Messiah was going to be this kind of warrior king. That, that's the picture that was most commonly accepted in his day, that, that the Messiah was from the line of David. Remember David and Goliath, that David, the David that established a security and, and a national foothold for the nation of Israel. That David, warrior king David, that's who the new Messiah is going to be too, right? We've got these Roman oppressors and now Israel's finally going to be liberated again under this warrior king and then Jesus says, now it's time for me to go die. What? Peter's not concerned about Jesus. He's concerned about this revolution that he's been promised. He's just been named second in command and now his leader is going to go die. Peter's not just fearful for Jesus' sake, but I would argue primarily his own. How often do we pretend to defend God when really we're just concerned about our own safety, our own way of life, our own comfort? I asked myself this question many times this week. It's one that I'm going to sit in this next week and for weeks to come, I imagine. Am I defending Jesus when I think I'm defending Jesus? Am I defending Jesus or am I defending my own interests? Am I defending some image of Jesus that I've warped Jesus into? Am I defending my own expectations. 
my own safety, my own way of life. He'd, Peter had walked away from the life that he knew, and he'd followed this young, rebellious teacher, and he now believed him to be this revolutionary warrior king, and now Jesus says he's going to be willingly martyred. It's not a stretch to think that Peter thought to himself, whoa, 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 how am I supposed to do this without you? I, I can't do this. I can't do what you do. I thought we were in this together. I thought we were going to change the world. I thought we were going to liberate our people. You know, one thing I noticed this week is that those who would claim to protect or defend Jesus' place or Christianity's place in our nation or in our world frequently are those who really seek to protect or defend a certain way of life. A security or comfort they feel comes with American evangelical Christianity's place in our prevailing culture. It's this place and power that has been held for a long time, and that power is fading, and that leads to this defensiveness that I see so frequently today. You know, the phrase religious freedom hit the headlines again as a couple of Supreme Court justices made a case for reopening, relitigating same-sex marriage rights in our country. And because they use the phrase religious freedom as a pastor, as someone whose religion is my life, those words mean something to me. And I believe in religious freedom as long as what we mean by that is that everyone should be allowed to practice their faith or lack thereof, however they see fit, assuming it doesn't harm anybody else. But my friends, too many Christians say religious freedom when what they really mean is, I want everyone else to live by my personal beliefs. That's a troubling place to be. I want to say this very clearly, and I thought a lot about these words. Jesus was never in the business of winning the power of nations, but rather liberating the hearts of all people. I want to say that again. If Jesus came to liberate Israel, he failed. Jesus was never in the business of winning the power of nations, but rather liberating the hearts of all people. Peter made the mistake of thinking that Jesus simply wanted to liberate a country, to lord over a nation, and I pray that we don't limit Jesus in the same way. The protective instinct that Peter feels that we can feel this defensiveness is not purely selfless. In fact, if we're being really honest, it might actually be selfish at some times. At the very least, it ignores the challenging command that Jesus offers to Peter and to us here. But I want to offer some good news this morning. Because I sat in a whole lot of conviction this week as I was wrestling with this text. And I forgot to get to the end when Jesus doesn't leave Peter behind him as calling him Satan. Jesus doesn't say, get behind me, Satan, then Peter's done. No, Jesus goes on. And Jesus keeps talking for us too. Jesus doesn't simply leave Peter there. No, he says, here's what I am calling you to, Peter. So you think you're helping, but you're not. So why don't you get behind me, and while you're there, pick up your cross and follow me. Pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus doesn't call us to take up arms or to brandish sword and shield as his white knights in shining armor, but rather to, he tells us to get in the dirt alongside of him, to pick up the burdensome cross and to follow in his martyred footsteps. In a word, Jesus calls us to be vulnerable. To be vulnerable. 
Now here's the problem with vulnerability is that to the powerful in our world, vulnerability may look like weakness or foolishness, but in God's eyes, it's a sign of strength and courage. See, when Peter thought he was following a revolutionary, he thought he was following him into battle, but instead he's following him to pick up a cross. When Jesus is on the cross and he's wearing a crown of thorns, he's mocked as the king of the Jews, but that was never Jesus' goal. To the powerful in our world, vulnerability may look like weakness or foolishness, but in God's eyes, it's a sign of strength and courage. It's why it's in our creeds. We know this is a part of God's character and God's strength. Opening ourselves up to attack. Laying ourselves down for the sake of other people. Suffering the ridicule of the mocking crowds that somebody else might be graced as a result. This life is not our own. Our vulnerability is our strength. And it's infectious. The Council of Nicaea knew this to be true. It gives permission for people to know that they are not alone, that there is a God in this world that suffers along with them, that there are people in this world that take up crosses along with them. It gives them courage to become vulnerable as well. It exposes the lie that any of us have to pretend that we have it all together. Are you so sick and tired of pretending like you've got it all together? And here's the best news of all. Best news of all is that God does not ask us to do this alone. God does not ask us to do anything that God is unwilling to do. Jesus doesn't say to go pick up that cross over there and start walking that away. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. God has lived the life of vulnerable courage and strength and invites us to follow in God's footsteps as those marked by Christ's work. As I begin thinking about the way that Christ marks us and asks us to follow in these footsteps, I began to think about Harry Potter. Any Harry Potter fans out there? Go ahead and give a thumbs up or type your favorite Harry Potter quote in the chat. I've been reading the first book with my daughter recently. Reagan and I have both been reading the first book with Andy. And uh, we just finished it this past week. And tonight we're going to watch the first movie because we have a rule in our house. You've got to read the book before you watch the movie. So it's a big weekend in the Gilliland household. And I hate to spoil the book for you, but it's been out for like a while. So you might want to pause the stream right here if like for some reason you're just waiting for a spoiler-free read of Harry Potter. Um, but at the end of the first book, Harry Potter, he has this showdown with Professor Quirrell who's not really just Professor Quirrell, but he's also got Voldemort growing out the back of his head, and this is kind of wild. And, uh, and he goes to attack Harry, and, and he touches Harry's scar, and he, and he singes with pain, and he pulls back, because it turns out he can't actually hurt Harry in that way. He can't even touch him. And, and, and Harry asks Professor Dumbledore, Albus Dumbledore, why this was, and Dumbledore's kind of explaining some things at the end of the book. It turns out that Harry's parents had sacrificed themselves and it, it, when he was a child, when he was a baby, when Voldemort tried to kill his whole family, his parents sacrificed themselves so that Harry could live. It's why he has the scar on his forehead. And, and Dumbledore says this, your mother died to save you. If there's one thing Voldemort cannot understand, it is love. Love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. To have been loved so deeply even though the person who loved us is gone, will give us some protection forever. My friends, Jesus does not promise us protection in the traditional sense. We're promised crosses and dirt and mud. 
but instead what we're promised is protection from a selfish life that is ultimately meaningless. Praise be to God for that. Jesus leads us instead to a selfless life that continues the liberating work of Christ. So my prayer is that we could live as those marked by Christ's life and ministry. That we could receive the challenging words of Christ. To not stand opposed to the work that Christ has to do in this world. To to form Christ into some image that we think he should be, but instead to get behind. To find our own crosses. To bear them. The vulnerability. The courage and strength that's found in those crosses. And to follow in his marked footsteps. Amen.